Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is episode six of the series covering the latest issue of the magazine, Made Perfect. Today, we'll be taking listener questions and then having deep thoughts of our own, possibly. I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, editor-in-chief of Plow. This is the episode where we hear from you and then try to figure out what, if anything, we've learned from doing this issue. First off, questions and answers. So question one is actually from um, a... Twitter personality called Pontius Pilates, whose uh, anonymity we are protecting by not telling who he is, although we know. Um, And he said yesterday, I've only listened to a couple of episodes and read a couple of articles so far, but I've been surprised not to encounter the idea that disability is a social, not a natural phenomenon. What counts as ability or disability is a function of what societies construe as normal or required or good. In other words, what do we think about the so-called social model of disability, which is a whole bunch of syllables for a really important insight? Right. We should first explain what we're even talking about, right? Because the social theory of disability, for those who aren't following it, is is, uh, summarized a little by Pontius Pilates' um, question that... Dr. Pilates. That that, um, disability is something that is created by your social context or your economic context or like the architectural context mm-hmm. that you live in. Uh, and it distinguishes between disability and impairment. So if I have a non-typical arm, uh, then as Leo Labresco said in, in a previous episode, um, I may need a different kind of door opener, right? And the disability doesn't come from this arm that doesn't function as other people's arms might but it comes from the fact that people insist on uh, putting door handles or doorknobs uh, on doors that aren't suited for me. So the disability comes from, in that case, from actually the way my environment is structured and not from how I am, right? Yeah. And I mean, so like the the steel man case for this is something like left-handedness. Left-handedness is not in any way a disability. Uh, it's not even, you know, you could call it an impairment if for some reason you wanted to say, I think actually some of the church fathers actually did say that right-handedness was the normal and good thing and left-handedness was like an aberration. But that's, I mean, obviously the reason that left-handedness is perceived as a disability sometimes sort of in a very, very minor way is because scissors are designed for people with right hands. I mean, right-handed people. Um, So like that's a kind of maximalist yeah, the thing to do is like make scissors for left-handed people. And then there's all the other cases. For instance, uh, people who are blind can only not read books if you don't have books in that Braille. That they can read, right. Or right. that they, or, or if you don't books. have, right, right. So like the solution there is like make a whole bunch of audiobooks. Like this, these are things um, that, you know, are kind of easy. Well, let's just, you know, help people to do, to be f- as fully and thrivingly human as they can. A person who uses a wheelchair is only disabled at, or prevented from participating in some type of public function if There's the venue no that is held has no ramp. So, yeah. And, you know, so I'm not sure what should we should say about that, except that as far as it goes, um, we absolutely agree that that model has a lot of value. And I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, when I was a kid, there was a a school a school child, there was an, a girl a little older than me with Down syndrome. This was now mid-1980s. Uh, and at that point, to have Down syndrome still meant a pretty short lifespan. That, at least that was people's expectation, although thankfully um, she is still 
doing great. Um, but uh, at the time, she was treated very kindly, mm-hmm. but also was uh, in no way sort of integrated or mainstream. She was part of uh, the, sc- the school community, but uh, she, she, she didn't kind of run with the pack. Um, now we know that people with Down syndrome can do all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you coming at this podcast for the first time on this episode, uh, in the first episode of the series, we talked about uh, my late friend Dwayne, who is Maureen's, my fellow editor, Maureen's brother, uh, who is deeply disabled, couldn't talk, couldn't walk, um, had an extremely damaged brain from uh, lifelong epilepsy and uh, a, whole, a bunch of other conditions that went with it. There was no way that his, whether you want to call it impairment or disability, um, this was not socially constructed. Mm-hmm. This was not economically or culturally constructed. This was a man who was suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, not always who, and not always. Not always, who gave a lot, who was a f- fully human being. And isn't it crazy, though, that we have to say, even though he was suffering, he yeah. really was human? Yeah. Um, like, why Why are those things yeah. intention? Yeah. And I mean, what she, what Maureen said is like that there were times in their family's life um, when, so what their family did, which I didn't know until she told me this morning, was that basically all of the siblings and she's, it's her and four brothers. And they basically made a pact together as a family, P-A-C-T together as a family, that whatever Dwayne couldn't participate in, they wouldn't, they would like, they would just try and make as much as possible family activities would be things that Dwayne would part- would be able to participate in. Um, and so they would just structure their decisions about what to do as, mm-hmm. you know, when they were having family time in that way. And um, she said the times that they had tried to just think of Dwayne and invite other people to see him as just another kid in a wheelchair, like there are plenty of kids in wheelchairs, but Dwayne actually, she said that actually didn't serve him or them very well because he's not just another kid in a wheelchair. Like there are things that most much, much less profoundly disabled people in wheelchairs can do that Dwayne couldn't do. And not acknowledging that or pretending, you know, expecting that that's not real, you know, was actually really hard on both Dwayne and on them. So, I mean, one of the things that like thinking about this more carefully, such as I you know, in as much as I have been trying to, it seems like it's just to say, to call disability this one category is really misleading because we're talking about like a jillion different things from like, and it, you know, of, of different kinds. Like, you know, intellectual disability is something different from even profound physical disability. Like if you think about um, Stephen Hawking, like there, we just, to, to say, to use this one word to encompass all of this stuff and say, there, here is the kind of correct um, way to think about it. I think, you know, just, just in, destroys the particularity of each of these people because each the one what is true about each disabled person is that they are a person. They're like there's no one who is a quasi person. There's no one who is like mostly made in the image of God. Each of these people, with all of these different you know things going on that we all call all of which we call disability. What's also true of them is that they are a person made in the image of God. They're our brother and sister or sister. And I, I think that's what I wanted to come down to as well, is that to, you know, uh, neither of us belong to the disability com- community, if you want to, you know, use language like that. Um, I certainly can't speak 
for a Dwayne. His family can't speak for a Dwayne. Actually, nobody can speak for a Dwayne, and Dwayne can't speak for Dwayne because he he can't talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so to put everybody kind of into a box, uh, a, a sort of class, um, I, I that's that's sort of my trouble with the social mm-hmm. theory of disabilities. I think there's there's people f- for whom that certainly fits, but I I wonder. Uh, if it really fits for those who are actually unable to express themselves, who maybe, you know, have impairments so great that they are unable to communicate their own point of view. And we should also not presume to do that for them. Uh, and and we may, and, and I say this carefully, but we may also just have to get a little more comfortable with sitting with the fact that one can be a fully human person made in the image of God and yet, have a life that involves suffering and, and, and that we, we kind of are able to hold those two things together. That kind of brings us to our next yeah. reader question here. Um, wh- one reader wrote in, how can we as a society avoid paternalism in our care for disabled people? How does that look? Right. And I think, again, like, well, first of all, my, my instinct is paternalism does not necessarily is not a bad word for me um when somebody needs a father it is good for there to be paternalism around when you know just in the way that religion is a crutch yes it definitely is and as ross you know doubt that mentioned on our previous podcast with him crutches are good yeah so, <laughs> when if you, you need break one your leg crutches are great sometimes paternalism um is good i think that what is probably deeply annoying to people who are you know fall into the category of disability, but who just kind of want to get on with their lives and, you know, even on meritocratic terms, just try to succeed as much as they can. I would be deeply irritated if somebody like looked at me and kind of said, they're there, like, you know, let me help you, like, you know, sort of infantilized me um, as an adult woman, because I had whatever condition that that made them feel like infantilization was appropriate. So like, I don't know. It, it feels like a main, a major thing here again is like, try not to pre- be prejudiced in a very sort of specific way. Try not to prejudge um, what you know someone is or is like, or how you you know ought to treat them. Try to be chill and normal. I guess is one way to put it. And trying to answer this question, I'm running into the same problem we had with the first one: is that who are we talking about? Right. Uh, what what are the experiences? Th- that, that that we're describing. So I'm not sure that I have a lot more useful to say is, mm-hmm. I think the bad paternalism that everyone hates, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. kind of chauvinistic guys, you know, who mansplain or um, people who are more educated than somebody else and, and let everyone else know, um, is, you know, anyone who's full of themselves and, and not fully attentive to, to the equal, essential equality of, the person who's across from him or her. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I had to learn with Dwayne, as I tell in my editorial, uh, that, that sneaking suspicion that my achievements, uh, such as they, they are, or my qualifications or, you know, what kind of technocratic, you know, points I've scored in life somehow are what make me important compared to somebody who maybe hasn't had the opportunity to do that. Um, in, in any situation, whether with people with disabilities or not, you know, that's just a bad thing. Uh, it's a rude thing, and, and it's a deeply unchristian thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 
it is unfortunately a fairly natural uh, thing as well. So it's one of those things you got to get in the habit of maybe approaching people differently than we do. Do you have a question that you wanted to get into here? I actually had a, um, I wanted to address a comment, which is pretty uh, intensely awful. What was the, uh, you should first say which article the sure, comment this, is the comment responding is to. In response to, um, so Sarah Williams is um, a, a plow author. She actually has a book with us. Um, the book and the piece, by implication, are a, uh, or by extension, are about um, her daughter, uh, Carrion, who was diagnosed with a condition which meant that she wouldn't really survive past birth, um, or it was very, very, very unlikely. And everyone told Sarah and Paul, her husband, that they needed, you know, that Sarah needed to get an abortion. Um, the doctors, they live in the UK. The doctors were universally, basically. Um, they had to really fight to not have an abortion. Um, but they didn't. She didn't. And um, Carrion was born and died. And that, you know, that happened. And somebody on Twitter commented um, on this article, fortunate child to not live long enough to enter a life of suffering imposed by parents' egotistical beliefs. Well, that really flips things. Yeah. Um, and needless to say... I think it's safe to say that yeah. both of us couldn't disagree more with yeah. this. And yet you can say a horrible person. She's actually expressing a set of beliefs that are pretty much the law of the land in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, I, I hate to try to steel man this and I, I can't really, but like if you are, if you genuinely think that, 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 that there's nothing about humans that means that humans shouldn't kill them. Um, if you genuinely think that, avoiding suffering is the maximum good thing that you can do for your child in avoiding their suffering is the maximum good thing for that you can do for your child um and that suffering is always bad and that um that there's just not a transcendent value in human life such that it's sacred then yeah like the best thing you can do for your child when they are suffering is to kill it um and to not do that is selfish or e egotistical in some way. But the, I the assumption here that that the parents are egotistical for somehow imposing life yeah. on their child is, I mean, it's wrong and it's bad, but it's also just wild. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't really understand the. I, I have to say, I don't totally understand why egotistical would be the word that they would choose. I think because the parents, these presumably religiously motivated parents, are feeding their own sense of, of righteousness okay. by somehow uh, bringing a child into the world only to have that child suffer. And this is, right, this is sort of a, a layman's version of uh, Peter Singer's utilitarianism right. uh, that, you know, and, and of course his, his notorious argument that, that infants with disabilities, you know, ought to be, uh -huh. ought to be, not just can be, but almost, basically ought to be yeah. euthanized by their parents. Again, big footnote here, this is not even assisted dying by an autonomous person seeking to end his or her own life. This is, this is involuntary uh, killing. Yeah. And what is the thing that is being prevented? This horrible suffering that uh, no human being in history has ever had to live with suffering, right? Like this, this shying away from any any idea that human life just might involve suffering. I, yeah. I, 
this is this comment for all its kind of trollishness mm -hmm. um, gets at a set of attitudes yeah. that basically that's why we put this issue of yeah. together is, is to try to get at them. Yeah. Hopefully not in a way that's, you know, just finger wagging and, you know, you terrible people. But I really hope that some of the stories we told, and especially for instance, in the article by Maureen Swinger, the art of disability parenting, uh, as well as in pieces by Amy Julia Becker mm -hmm. and by Victoria Farmer, mm -hmm. uh, just telling those kinds of stories uh, is the best argument I can think of yeah. against this whole approach. Yeah. I mean, there's one other thing I'd want to say is that, like, this is a question of this is to a certain degree a matter of fact. Like, what we, you know, what we believe as Christians is that children aren't ours to kill. Like, we're, and we're not ours to kill. Like, we, human life, each human life is sort of almost unfathomably holy and important, belongs to God, is made in his image. There are no ordinary people. C.S. Lewis has this line about like you, you know, you go out and you look at like all the sort of homeless people. You look at like the annoying lunch lady. You look at like your sort of annoying siblings. Every sort of miscellaneous person on the subway, and there are no ordinary people. And each of those beings, each of those creatures that you're looking at, is either going to be someone he says who you would run from in terror because they're going to become something horrifying or they're going to be something that you would be sorely tempted to worship um and the 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 holiness um which can be corrupted obviously but which is never lost is at the center of human anthropology in in as we think about it as christians and we just can't we don't have it in us to let that go um not when we look at ourselves and not when we look at anyone else so I think that's a great segue into the next question that I want to get into, which is from Spencer on Twitter. Uh, how can we help society to see disabled people as good for their own sake when society does not share the Christian commitment to universalism and the imago Dei and the image of God? Right. So you've just been talking about the image of God and the Christian belief that we certainly both share. Uh, that is because each disabled person person, each non-disabled person is created in the image of God. Uh, that is why their life is sacred. Mm -hmm. But if you don't share that belief. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What, what else is there? Yeah. So, I mean, I had a couple of ideas and the way that to sort of like encapsulate how I was thinking of this is like, how can we address this by common grace or by natural law? So like Christians have this idea that as well as like special revelation, we also like there's a lot of stuff that, you know, God didn't really need to reveal to us in through prophets or anything like that or through Christ. But just we know through reason, we know through um, conscience, we, you know, we Christians don't think that like everyone who's not a Christian doesn't have a conscience or anything like that or, or can't think about right and wrong. We all can and do constantly think about right and wrong, whether or not we're Christians. So um, you know, a couple of things that we can just notice about human life is that, you know, we, we need to be needed. It's not just that, like, if you are disabled or something, you need help. It's that it, you, you don't have a good human life if nobody ever needs you. Like, and therefore, people who have disabilities are in some sense an incredible blessing, an incredible gift to the rest of us who might be able to help them. That's the paternalism bit. Like, there's all kinds of other, you know, 
ways to think about it that are more traditionally like they also they also have like autonomous um, subjective you know rights. They ought to be allowed to make their own life plans and thrive. Those are kind of like the I guess you would call them Lockean or liberal or Rawlsian um, ways of approaching this. But like you know more in a again not Christian but kind of a little bit deeper um, way of thinking about it. To be needed is not a bad thing, and to be someone who calls out care in someone else is not a bad thing. And, you know, if you if you're someone who is disabled and feels or, you know, is sort of looking at the end of your life and a, a great deal of care is going to be needed to give give to you, like, it might be that those who are going to be giving you care need to be able to give that care. And you might not realize it. But by ending your own life, you might be stealing something from them that they need. You might be, you know, just given that what, what we know about suicide and how it impacts families, you know, and I think this is true of like late in life assisted suicide as well to even if it's like a little bit more muted in certain ways, I think that you're unleashing intergenerational, multi-generational pain if you choose, if you choose to kill yourself on those who you care about. And I just, I think that there is, this is again, not a, observation based on like Christianity this is just like human stuff if we let ourselves see it to do that to yourself is hurting the whole world and to stay alive is one of the greatest gifts you can give to the world and allow others to help you when you need help you know looking at this question the way I think about it is society actually knows that people with disabilities are good in themselves Mm -hmm. Um, with one half of its brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and without using the language of the Imago Dei, the image of God, our legal system tends to use words like dignity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the first, the famous first line of the German constitution is uh, the, the dignity of man is inviolable, mm-hmm. right? And that's written into all kinds of things, and specifically in regard to disability, this is written to a 2007 UN convention, mm-hmm. um, this language of dignity. And that's one great way to talk to people about it, because people actually realize that when, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, people with babies with disabilities are selected for abortion, mm-hmm. that that is a violation of dignity, not only of those babies who are killed, but also by implication, a, a kind of um, enacted violence against born people with disabilities, um, that's something that people realize and people are very squeamish about. And you can see in uh, journalism and and writing about issues like, Mm -hmm. uh, say, um, Iceland's eradication of all all babies with disability, Mm -hmm. um, a kind of nervousness. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, It doesn't sit well with people. Mm -hmm. People people recognize that, that Although they may believe, for instance, in a woman's right to choose an abortion, um, they see that that's really in conflict with fully affirming the dignity dignity of those with disabilities. So I think one way we talk to people about it is to lean into the intuition that's already there, that the dignity of each human being is inviolable and and, um, just insist, and it really is inviolable. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah, and without you, an asterisk. Yeah, and one, and that means that it's inviolable by you as well. And when you violate your own 
you know, dignity through choosing some kind of like assisted suicide or something like that, as well as when you violate someone else's by choosing abortion or, you know, involuntary euthanasia, you're not just attacking that one person. You're attacking everyone else, like literally every other person, because every other human being, you're making it a less safe world for them. You're making it a world that is less likely to affirm their existence, um, that, you know, implies that they need to make an argument and make a case for themselves that implies that, you know, everyone needs to at all times be both very happy, not suffering, um, maximizing their productivity um, in order to prove that, you know, they have enough utils or whatever that, you know, John Stuart Mill metric is um, to continue to live for one more day. Um, And that's just, that's not good. That's not real. That's not how, that's not true. We can just, let's not do that. Now, I do think if we use language like dignity, it's on us too, as Christians, to work really hard to create a culture where that word dignity is filled mm-hmm. with the essential meaning mm-hmm. of what Scripture calls the image of God, mm-hmm. yeah. um, that that word doesn't get unmoored and start meaning something else. Yeah. But that's a discussion maybe for another day. Let's look at another question. Excellent. Uh, Should we talk about cities? Yeah. Matt Robert, who is a friend of the pod and an urbanist, says, how can we redesign slash rebuild cities to be more open and accommodating to people with disabilities? I really love this idea. Okay. So let's, let's, of course, everyone's going to say, yes, we should do that. Right. And and, and so do we, Uh but let me just, let me just come at another tech because I was talking about Leah Labresco's piece Mm -hmm. about uh, designing for those with disability the other day. And, you know, um, the person I was talking to about it actually pushed back a bit. And he said, you know, if imagine redesigning Venice Mm -hmm. to make the entire city wheelchair accessible, what would be lost? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and he was like, are, are you really sure that you want to, you know, create concrete accessibility ramps, you know, all over Venice or Rome or, uh, you know, uh, Tokyo? Uh, I was kind of left, you know, yeah, opening I, and I, shutting my mouth for I a while. I kind of feel like that too, actually. Um, because I was all in. I was all, as soon as Matt sent this in, I was like, yes, let's do it. And I was thinking, like, get rid of cars. Like, make it, like, that's step, or not to get rid of cars. But, like, you know, make there be, like, make it be much more pedestrian-friendly and slow pedestrian-friendly. Um, you know, we, it's easy enough to put in ramps. Like, this is this is kind of an easy win. But I think there actually might be cases when there is something lost. And that's a really freaky thing to think about. You know, one of the ways that we can think about what dis- disabled people might need is helpers. And I'm thinking about, um, you know, the lame man's friends who kind of knocked the whatever sort of covering off the roof and let him down inside um, the house where Jesus was so that Jesus could heal him. It seems like probably the best way for a disabled person to see Venice is to see it with a bunch of people who are his friends and helpers who would be able to, like, physically help him Um, because that's like respecting the integrity of the city as it is and also like you know not you know enabling this person to also have the experience of the city as it is which would you know if it were if the city were changed such as to make it perfectly accessible to someone who is disabled when that person who is disabled you know saw it it wouldn't be the same city so I mean I think that friends and helpers are kind of the 
solution here if, if in that particular question case. And again, um, are we making it open and accommodating to which people right. with which disabilities? Uh, that said, many, many places are not Venice. Mm -hmm. Most places, are, uh, most places not are not Venice. All but one. And uh, I think there is clearly way more that can be done uh -huh. uh, to make cities and f first uh, good for kids, good for people with disabilities, good for families, good for old people so they don't need to be put away into, um, you know, old people's homes where they, you know, die of COVID as they tragically have here in the Hudson Valley over the last two years. Um, there's so much more that could be done to make cities true, tr true cities, mm -hmm. uh, where people live together of all generations with all different level uh, kinds of ability and disability, um, cities that are good for people. Yeah. And I have to say, like, if you're, if you start, you know, if you hear this and you start saying like, oh, but that's gonna be, you know, it's gonna involve a lot of changes. It's gonna like really disrupt, blah, blah, blah. We did this to make cities accessible to cars and cars are not as important as people. And therefore, I think that we can like we could get probably it do a lot, yeah, a lot more. Yeah. Thanks to all of you who sent in questions. Thank you very much. All right, so we're getting into what did we, as in you, Susanna, and I, mm -hmm. uh, what did we learn mm -hmm. from doing this series mm -hmm. on Made Perfect Ability and Disability? Do you want to do you want to start? Sure. Um, I mean, I definitely feel like I was starting kind of from zero in the sense of like I hadn't really thought much about this. I, you know, I, I feel like especially in terms of sort of sensitivities around the way people talk about disability and think about disability and that sort of thing um, and the social model of disability. Like I just hadn't thought very carefully. It wasn't something that I'd really run into much. Um, I, I feel like the biggest thing that I've learned pretty quickly after we got started on this issue, like three months ago or whatever it was, is that, you know, when someone first mentioned it, the topic, like, let's do an issue on disability, I was like, that's kind of niche. And the biggest thing I've learned is that, like, this is not niche, because not only are there so many more people who fall into this incredibly overgeneralized category um, than you would think, um, because our, for various reasons, one of which is our society kind of makes visible the people who are able and kind of in their peak earning years and kind of look nice. Um, and in, it kind of invisibilizes people who don't, you know, function or look or seem the way that, you know, we, we feel most comfortably that they ought to. Um, but also that, you know, questions about disability just touch really directly on both questions of basic humanity, like what does it mean to be human, which applies to all of us. And also just cut right to the chase in terms of Christian hope. Like this, the main thing that disability or a main thing that disability, thinking about profound disability in particular does is like, what are you hoping for? Like if someone's just not going to be able to succeed meritocratically and is not going to be able to do a human flourishing, um, do we believe or don't we that there's um, the resurrection of the body? And like what does that belief imply about the way that we can think about difficulties of various kinds, suffering of various degrees, annoyance of various degrees, obligation, like is either this is true or it's not. And, um, you know, this topic really is kind of shoved that right in my face in a very helpful way, I think. 
Yeah, isn't it interesting that, so one thing I've learned, similar to what you said, is although I had I had thought, you know, since since my experience with Dwayne and also just with, you know, others with disability that I've known um, somewhat about this topic, uh, I still, when we began, I was thinking about disability as them, those mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Now, the chances are that most of us mm-hmm. talking and listening mm-hmm. are, are heading into disability ourselves. Um, you know, millions of people get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's every year. Uh, Simple old age brings with it, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of impairments. Mm -hmm. Those are all things that are facing most of us, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So when we're talking about disability, we're not talking about other people. We're talking about possibly ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, And with that, came to me that, that that we so often think about disability as the topic, as mm-hmm. the, so to speak, problem to be solved, mm-hmm. when maybe it's ability <laughs> that we should be thinking of as the problem to be solved. Because the, the, the flip side of, you know, technocra- technocracy or, or meritocracy or whatever you want to, you know, the, the, the big words we use to describe measuring people by their uh, economically valuable or socially valuable achievements uh, is that, while we then think that those who aren't able to succeed in in those ways are, are less valuable, and we think that's a problem, and we've talked about that, it also means that those who are able to succeed in those ways think uh, that those achievements belong to them. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's it's the goals and purposes of ability that we need to question just as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in the Gospels, Jesus does that. He speaks of the parable of the talents, and those mm-hmm. talents are not yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if for a number of years, maybe a number of decades, maybe for most of your life, you don't uh, live with impairments or disability, those are things lent to you to yeah. do stuff with. And you better not screw up what you're doing with them. Like, that's not yours to decide what to do with. That's not yours to use for only your own good. Um, like... If you have an, if you have the ability to thrive, and, and I mean, even even just in terms of thinking of like, if you don't have a disability, therefore you might, you know, be able to get stronger or get healthier, and you don't do that, that's kind of a bit problematic too. Because you, if you were stronger or healthier, you would be able to help more. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's all there's the way of like thinking of all everyone's ability as kind of belonging to everyone not in a kind of creepy uh, um, collectivist way, but in a in a kingdom of God way. Like if all of our potentials, all of our talents, all of everything that we could develop, everything that we have developed, if all of that is really for the kingdom and for each other and to help, like what, what do we do every day? Like how do we live every day, if that's true? Uh, let's get back to Socrates. We talked about Socrates at the beginning of this, right? And uh, this quote, that shows upon Jim Walls mm-hmm. about, you know, every man, you know, has a duty to basically be all he can be. Um, and <laughs> for, Athens. for Athens, right? <laughs> well, yeah, in this case, for a city nearby Athens, right? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and that uh, every man has a duty to achieve the greatest degree of physical uh, perfection that he can. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's the way that what's true about 
what Socrates said right there uh-huh. is true in the sense of looking at ability as a talent that you can use for others. Yeah, and, and then you really do have that duty. Yeah. Uh, you need to push yourself so that you can be there for others during those years, recognizing that it's temporary, uh-huh. that you're going to have have that strength, have that ability, mental, physical, whatever it might be. Uh-huh. And you're going to make the most of those years when you have it. And then um, also be able to, without rancor, mm-hmm. you know, relinquish it, mm-hmm. you know, when, when the time comes. And receive help in your own turn. Um, th- this is just so, it's so, so much of like all of what we're talking about just seems like remedial human stuff. Like we were talking to Kelsey yesterday about um, kind of what it means to live according to the Torah. And like, it, it just again and again, looking at thinking of things in terms of how they're described in the Bible, thinking of things in terms of like basic Christian concepts and basic Jewish concepts. It's sort of like, we know, like we, how could we have forgotten this? Like how, how could we have like started thinking of ourselves in a different way where like with this like huge emphasis on living for ourselves and on our own personal agency and on on our sort of uh, making commitments, making decisions that are purely based on our will. Like that's just so fake. That's not real. That's not what human life is. Um, Yeah, I I feel like a huge thing this issue has taught me is just like it's reminded me what human life is, which is I think a good thing for a Christian magazine to do. Um. I guess one other thing that I'd like to uh, talk about is the way that, like, you know, I, I I felt like, you know, a lot of the disability rights language that we were running into when we were sort of thinking about how to um, incorporate different ways of thinking about disability into this issue, just as much as the kind of technocratic um, meritocracy-based uh, way of thinking about humans is, I think, lacking, I think some of the disability rights ways of thinking about disabled people are people are lacking in the sense that like i i just am a little bit um unnerved or like worried about the idea of thinking of disabled people as a political class who have a sort of political interest in the way that some disabled um advocates sort of tend to talk about them there's something there but it seems like what that's trying to get at is the the need for human solidarity between people of all abilities. Hmm. Well, I think that's the weakness of rights language in general, mm-hmm. is that yeah. it gets at real truths. Uh-huh. And boy, if you look at the history of the way people with disabilities have been treated in this country uh, and actually throughout human history, is there ever reason for a yeah. disability rights movement? If disability justice, there is n- nobody's arguing with that. Yeah. And yet. And yet. Rights rights language is extremely limiting mm-hmm. and can become misleading mm-hmm. if we then take our eyes off of uh, what really matters, which is the individual human being, his or her flourishing as an image of God and being loved and, and being able to love. In a community, in a community that is the, the fullest, exp- living in which community is the, helps them to be the fullest expression of that individual self that they are. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Susanna, and thanks to all our listeners for joining us on this journey, and we look forward to the next series of the Plowcast, which will be on... Music. Till then. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your app of choice and rate us. 
This is the last podcast for this issue, but for the next six weeks, you will be able to download one audio article per week. And we'll be back in a month and a half with a podcast series full of music. Mm-hmm.